Everyone has an idea, but is it right? Everyone seems to know what a Christian is, how the Christian life should look, and what kind of place the church should be. But are we even close? What if we could know? What if it looks different than we think? What if what God is building is more than a group of good people, but a community? Join us as we walk through the book of Philippians and see together a beautiful community. All right. Hey, everybody. Uh, Kids ages three to pre-K can head down to Holy Cross Kids Worship. The rest of you grab a Bible. Um, I'll uh, let you know where to open a little later. If you don't have a Bible with you, (laughs) well... uh, if the text isn't in your order of worship this morning like it normally is. Uh, and, and so um, it'd be good to have one. If not, we're going to project it. It'll be fine. If, if, in case you weren't here earlier, my name's Rick. I'm the pastor here at Holy Cross. There are a lot of you here this morning. Uh, and so that's, that's awesome. We're, we're glad to worship with you. Um, if you're a regular here at Holy Cross, things are going to be a little different. Just bear with us. If you're not a regular uh, and, and this is your first time or you're fairly new, then you're not going to notice the difference, so don't worry about it. But uh, what I'm going to do right now is let me, let me pray for us, and we're going to get started, okay? So let's pray. Father, uh, as we come now proclaiming what we just proclaimed, our, our belief, our, our creed, we recognize that we don't live in accordance with that. Some of us here in this room don't believe a lick of what we just sang, if we sang it at all. And so, uh, Lord, we're, all of the different places where we come into this place this morning, we, we ask that you would meet us. Holy Spirit, we need you to move. We need you to work and to open our hearts, to create faith from unbelief, to, to move us towards more and more towards uh, a relationship with you. Uh, Lord, I pray that you would show yourself bigger than our doubts, that you would make yourself great in uh, our eyes this morning so that we might praise you for what you've done. We might give glory to you for... Uh, the reason why we've gathered together, that you have conquered sin, death, and the grave. We ask that you would do all these things in the name of our Savior, Jesus. Amen. Well, hey, here we are at Easter. Sorry, Carlton. I I tried. I I, I just can't do the coat and the tie at the same time. um, So here we are at Easter. This is like, I said this earlier, this is like Christianity's main event, right? Um, If uh, maybe maybe you remember when you were probably in high school, you read a book uh, called A Prayer for Owen Meany. In, in that book, there's this great little line in which it, one, of the, one of the characters says that um, anybody can be a Christian at Christmas. And that's true, right? Because whether or not you're a Christian, like at Christmas time, there's like the sentimentality and it's like, Oh, the little baby and, uh, and the wise men, even though they didn't really come till two years later, but we don't, well, we don't want to talk about that. And there's all this so the sheep and the, and the angels and it's great and all the songs and candles and, and Linus with his blanket declaring what the true meaning of Christmas is. Sentimentality can take over, but, but, but Easter, man, that's a little harder. And I get it. I mean, you know, Easter's the time when you buy new pastel dresses and you show up and though none of y'all have big hats on. I'm really disappointed. No big hats this morning. But anyway, uh, but, you know, we show up, uh, and, and I will almost say almost every year, and I, I kind of said it at the beginning, but I start almost every Easter sermon with the thought that Easter is a great day to be a pastor. And it is. But if I'm honest with you, this year, I have really struggled to get it. And maybe, maybe you're kind of there, too. Maybe you've struggled to get it, too. I mean, like I said, Easter is for us the main event, yet I, I find myself and, and others that I talk to just really struggling. Like, 
what is this, what does it really matter? Right? I mean, what, what does it really matter? Why? Why is Easter the main event? Why is this such a big deal? You ever thought about that? Maybe I'm the only one. Now, I know, I know, and some of y'all, especially if you grew up in the church, you're thinking right now, like, Rick, Easter's when Jesus rose from the dead. I get that, but, but like, bear with me a second, because what does like, a seemingly random event that happened 2,000 years ago to a Middle Eastern dude in his 30s have to do with me? Right? I mean, that's, that's, it's easy to say, well, he rose from the dead, and, and, and yet we can very easily kind of come to that conclusion and go, yeah, but, I mean, stuff happens, man, I mean... Crazy stuff happens. Like, that could just be just another crazy thing that happens. So, I, what I think most of us end up coming across when we come to Easter is we, we believe, even if you believe in the resurrection, it, it becomes something that's meaningful to us theoretically. Like, here's, yeah, there, here's this thing that should make a difference to us. Uh, or it's simply a curiosity. But at the end of the day, who cares? Who cares? Who cares about the resurrection? And so uh, that's what I've been struggling with as I've come uh, to get ready for today. And, and, and as I've thought and as I've prayed, I've kind of distilled it down to one uh, maybe phrase that's going to govern our time. One thing that we're going to talk about. Because getting the resurrection can make a difference in your life um, for this reason. Because the resurrection of Jesus tells you that the work to do has already been done. The resurrection of Jesus tells you that the work to do has already been done. So that's what's going to kind of govern our time together. So let me start with the work to do. Because when we're talking about the work to do, what we're, what we're really talking about is our work to do uh, before God. And, and even mentioning that, even saying the work to do before God, the main problem that we have is that we, we don't really understand what the work to do is. Like we have a, an assumption I think it's kind of inborn in us. As a matter of fact, I know it is. It's, it's kind of the Bible kind of talks about that. But it's this assumption inborn in us that the work to do, the thing that we've got to do for God, has to do with our morality. Right? You think about, like, is that something that has crossed your mind? Like, what God wants of me is to be good. The work that I need to do for God is to be good. And, and that is true of us whether or not, uh, no matter which morality we pick, and you know that we have different moralities, right? Like you've got traditional morality, which is on its way out. It's phasing out. And then you've got the more secularist morality and the kind of contemporary morality. The traditionalist morality is the, you know, you don't, you don't uh, drink, smoke, or chew, or go with girls that do. And then the, the, uh, the, the more secularist morality has less to do with um, sexuality and drugs and things like that. It has more to do with, like, ecology and... and um, and tolerance and things of that nature. But, but they're both are a morality that we, we want to hold to. Left to ourselves, we will always pick and choose a morality based on a couple of things. And here's a little dirty little secret we don't ever tell each other. We pick our morality, what we think is really good for us, like, yes, I'm passionate about that, normally based on either something we tend to care more about than other things or something we're really good at. Because if we do that, then we can say, I'm doing fine. But the problem is, is that even with, when we decide that the work to do is for us to be moral, the, the, the side for, we decide that the work to do, the work that God expects of us is to be good, the problem is that we know, you know, I know, that we can't even stay consistent even in that, can we? We have these things that we say, this is what I'm all about, and then we violate that. 
we, we can't stay consistent. And so what that does is that creates responses in us. I'm going to just talk about three responses really quick as we talk about this work to do. The responses that we generally have when we, when we uh, fail to do the work that we think we need to do um, is hiding. We'll start with hiding. You know what I mean by that, right? That's where you, you kind of wall yourself off from other people, keep things secret. You have the things that you do that's not your public face. It's the things you do in private that you don't really want anybody else to know about. Things you do in the dark, things in the closet. Like, there's just stuff you don't want other people to know about. It's not the stuff you put on the front page. It's hiding. Some of us, we, we don't know that we can hide enough, and so what we do is we just cut ourselves off from people, Right? We just kind of wall ourselves off on this fear of being shamed. And so hiding is one. Another one is, is um, if, if hiding is, is one, another one is blaming, right? And blaming is where we kind of shift the attention. We kind of shift the camera. When we're, here are some ways that, that uh, we can blame shift. Well, first and foremost, is, I didn't do that, right? I, I, didn't, I don't know what you're talking about. I didn't do that. Well, here I have this evidence. No, no, no I, didn't, I didn't do that. The second one is, is uh, by not just kind of deflecting attention away from ourselves, but the you don't understand excuse, right? Sometimes we blame when, when we've become, when it's come out that we're inconsistent with our own morality, we, we blame shift to go, well, you just don't understand how hard my life is. The parents I had, the kids I've got, the spouse I have. All of my employers always seem to be out to get me. Like, you don't understand. And the, the other way that we blame shift, the more insidious way, the probably the one way that's a little more normal for us, is the I'm sorry, but blame shift. Right? I'm sorry, but. Right? Someone approaches us, this happened, I'm sorry, but you see this. Right? And so what, what that does is it effectively shifts the blame. Like, you don't understand. If you really understood, you would see, that's not my fault. What happens not my fault? And so uh, hiding is one of the ways that we deal with things. Blaming is another way. And then finally, it's striving. And by striving, what I mean is that there are some of us here who are tireless in their efforts to try and accomplish the standard they think they have to meet. That's not all of us, right? Some of y'all are like, who is like that? But for some of us, that's what we do. We strive. We want to get that uh, that thing that we need. Because the work that we assume, the assumed work to do is we've got to be good. But here's the problem with that. The Bible talks about the fact that that is not indeed the work that God asks us to do. That it's actually something completely different. And it does that by talking to us about a story. Because in that story, the story that the Bible tells, and I know, look, most of us kind of grew up believing that the Bible is a book of rules. And, and it is, right? I mean, there, there are rules in here. Let me, like, right here. Thou shalt not commit adultery. Like, it's in there. Like, thou shalt not steal. And we keep the thous, even though this is like a modern English translation. But it, it makes it sound more gravitas. Like, the book, the Bible does have rules in it, right? We would be lying if we said it doesn't. But the Bible as a whole isn't a rule book. It's a story book. It gives a story, the story of who we are, what we were made to be, what our glorious destiny is. Like, that's what the Bible tells us. And it tells us a story of how God is working in all of this because it is ultimately his story. And the way that that story starts is that you and I, humanity was created to be in a dependent relationship with God. 
what, what that means is that we were created to love him and to be loved by him. Right? That, that what we were made for is to be with him. Not just to be good, but to be with him. But the problem is, is that in time, in, in the midst of this story, we came to believe a lie. Some of you are very familiar with this because I talk about this a lot. But that lie was simply this. It was a lie that God doesn't really love you. He doesn't really care for you. He's not really out for you. In fact, he's trying to use you and hold you back. Does that sound familiar? Because I think that's the way a lot of us kind of view the Lord, isn't it? We view God, whether or not we think so, like he gives us rules because he's just trying to keep our goodies from us. He's trying to hold us back. He doesn't want me to be fulfilled. He doesn't want me to be happy. If he wanted me to be happy, he'd give me what I want, right? So we came to believe that lie. And what happened when we came to believe that lie is everything, everything broke. Because we, we ended, we, instead of being in a dependent relationship with God, we turned away from him. We turned away from him. We betrayed him. And what that meant for us is three things. First and foremost, when we turned away from him, when we betrayed him, that's... See, that word betrayal, that's important because uh, we want to paint, when we hear the word, it's that three-letter word that in Christian circles, even in Christian circles, is just not a nice word. Sin. And when we hear sin, we think, I broke the rules. Uh, I, there are these arbitrary standards I'm supposed to meet. I didn't, I didn't get them. I didn't do the work I was supposed to do, right? That's what we think. But the Bible talks about sin not so much as breaking rules, but breaking a relationship. It's not about, uh, it's, it's ultimately about a betrayal, betraying a person, not a code, betraying a person. And so when we betrayed God, when we turned away from him, when we sought life on our own independently, three things happened. First and foremost, we had guilt. Guilt came. And you... I know it's not popular, but you know that this is the way it is, right? Because you've been betrayed, right? You've done the betraying, right? So have I. And what happens when that happens is guilt. It happens. There is a weight that comes, a, a thing that has to be borne by someone, okay? There is a weight that, so guilt, it first and foremost, happened. We became guilty before God. Secondly, though, we became broken, not just guilty, but broken. And what that means is that we became stuck. And whereas before, that lie had to be uh, kind of taught to us. God doesn't love you. God's not out for you. God doesn't, uh, God's trying to use you, and he's trying to hold you back. Now, it's our presupposition. Now, it's that thing that we start our conversations with. It's that thing that we, we start our assumptions with. God doesn't love me. God doesn't care for me. God's trying to use me. God's holding me back. We became stuck in our independence from God, in other words. So we became guilty, we became broken, and lastly we became alienated. Because when, you, when a betrayal happens, there is a gap that forms in a relationship. So we're in this terrible place where we were made for God, and yet we're alienated from God. We're made for Him, and yet we don't want to have anything to do with Him. That's why you and I go through life with this ache of, I can't be satisfied. How can I be satisfied? Well, we, we have that because what we were made for has been pulled away from us. So we're stuck in our independence. And that flavors, when we come into this place, that flavors how we view Jesus, right? Because look, 
you may not be a Christian here in this room. A lot of, the, a lot of you are, or at least you, you self-identify as a Christian. And so you came into this room and you have a particular view of Jesus. And that independence that we are stuck in, the Bible would say, flavors our view even of Jesus. And that is why most of us, when we're faced with who we are, and we're faced with who God is, when we're faced with who God is, and, and we have this assumption of what he thinks we're supposed to do, and then we're faced with who we are and the places where we've blown it, we look at God and we think, okay, Jesus. All right, I got Jesus. So what I need to do is I just need to follow what Jesus told me to do. I just need to go do what Jesus told me to do. If I do what Jesus told me to do, then I'll be okay. Or, or when we're faced with Jesus, but we know that we have very little hope of doing that, we end up thinking, I can't get near Jesus until I've polished myself off, cleaned myself up. Right? So here's the thing about that. More than a thing. This is the crazy thing. And by crazy thing, I do mean crazy. How is it that we think we can independently do the work that God requires of us if what we were made to be is dependent on him? You see how crazy that is? Let me me say that maybe differently. You and I cannot independently do the work that God requires if what God requires is dependence on him. So what we need to do is we need to find out if the resurrection of Jesus tells you that the work to do has already been done, we need to figure out what this is about, don't we? Because how does the resurrection of Jesus speak to that? And so what we're going to do in doing that is we're going to go to a passage of the Bible. We're going to go to Romans chapter 4. Romans Romans is one of the New Testament letters. It was written by this dude named Paul. You'd love him. He was super intense. Some of you are super intense. I know this because you're sitting in church trying to relax, listen to me, and you look like you're about to go run a marathon, right? So you're intense too. Um, and, And Paul was intense. Before he became a Christian, he intensely persecuted Christians, which meant that he was trying to kill them and throw them in jail. And he was intense about it. He was willing to walk hundreds of miles to go do this. And then after he became a Christian, because he did, Jesus met him, he became a Christian, he intensely tried to promote the faith that he once tried to persecute. It's great. Maybe, maybe y'all can relate to him. So Paul writes this letter, and he writes this letter to the Romans, uh, the church in Rome that he had never visited. And what he's doing in the, in, the, in the book of Romans is he's laying out a lot of what I just talked about. Here's the story of us. Here's how we're broken. Here's how good God is. Here's how we're broken. Here's how now God has promised to make things right. And he's answered that promise in Jesus. Okay? So we're going to pick this up in chapter 4, right there in verses 24 and 25, to help us see uh, what this is all about, right? Because as God, uh, as, as we sat in our brokenness, God did promise to make things right. And he did so through Jesus. Look at verse 25. Look at this last one right here. Well, verse 24 is like, I've got three words in verse 24. But then verse 25, it talks about Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. There's that resurrection language, right? Now, here's what I want to say about this. Uh, A couple of things as we walk through this. We'll get to being delivered in a second. Trespasses, that word trespasses, that sounds really... um, Churchy, especially if you've, if, if you've been in a church that prays the Lord's Prayer, right? Like we did a little earlier, as you pray the Lord's Prayer, uh, forgive us of our trespasses, and so that sounds really churchy. Now, uh, scholars will tell you that that word trespasses in the original, what that word means, it, it certainly means a, uh, a, a breaking of a command. But more often than not, 
what it's pointing to is a disruption of relationship. A disruption of our relation to God through our fault. Okay? And again, remember what I said earlier? What, is, what, is, what happened to us in the beginning? We betrayed God. What is a betrayal? It's a disruption of relationship through our fault. The whole Bible talks about that story in this way. Jesus was delivered for our trespasses. Those things that we did. Now, here, here's what that means. When you, uh, when, when you have guilt... When guilt happens in a betrayal, there are two people that can potentially bear that. When the betrayer bears it, we call it justice, right? When the, the one who's done the betraying bears the weight of the offense, we call that justice. The just thing has happened. The other person that can bear that weight is the one who was betrayed. And when the betrayed person bears the weight of the betrayal for the betrayer. We call that forgiveness. So you see, for God to forgive, he had to bear the weight of our offense. And that's what he did in Jesus. That's what that is pointing to. Delivered up for our trespasses. So when Jesus came, he didn't... He, the, the Bible is very clear. Jesus was like a dude who lived perfectly. Perfectly. Not just in one instance, not just in one aspect perfectly like he lived a perfectly dependent life on god but he went to the cross to bear the weight of our offense so when jesus hung on the cross on friday which by the way jesus didn't do that because he didn't have anything better to do on a friday afternoon right like it was purposeful it was intentional when jesus went to the cross on friday afternoon he did so to bear the weight of our offense. As he, as he hung there, suspended between heaven and earth, rejected by both, he took on himself the weight of our betrayal. He was delivered up, handed over, crucified for our trespasses, for our betrayal of God. But that's only half of it, isn't it? We still have the rest of this verse. He was delivered up for our trespasses and... No, go back, go back. There you go. Delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. There, there's, the, there's the resurrection language. Finally, finally gets to the resurrection. Justification, again, that's another technical term. Uh, justification is something that, that is super important. But, but before we get to that, let me just point out this. If all Jesus did was die on the cross, if all Jesus was was delivered up for our transgressions, what we have is a very tragic event in history. We have a very tragic event because here we have a guiltless man who died. But you know what? That happens every day. If, if Jesus only died for our sins, and, and we as Christians have placed our faith in Jesus, what that is like is like someone offering to take your final exam for you, and then you find out they flunked it. It's like, thank you. Thank you very much. I could have done that. Like, you flunked my exam for me. Thank you very much. But instead, we are told that he was raised for our justification. Like I said, that word justification is a technical term, but its meaning is profound. It means, uh, on its most basic level, to be declared in the right. Why don't you imagine that for a second? In other words, before God, you were declared in the right. Not just, yeah, yeah, I've gotten rid of the sin thing. No, no. 
in the right. You're actually right. You're not, you're, you're good. You're not just not bad. You're good now. Like, that's, you're good with me is what he's saying. Here's how this works and why the resurrection speak to it. Like I said, Jesus never sinned. Perfectly dependent relationship on the Father, fueled by the Spirit. But He became sin. And when He became sin, He was put to death for our transgressions. But then He rose from the dead, right? And He rose because ultimately He wasn't guilty. And so what the resurrection does is it both speaks to the fact that now... Um, though though uh, the Jews had, had declared him to be a blasphemer and a sinner, and the Romans had declared him to be a false king, and because of that verdict, he went to the grave, that now God has declared him something different. No, no, no. He's not a sinner, and he's not a false king. He is, in fact, the Son of God in power. So it's both God's not guilty verdict and his declaration that sin has been dealt with. You see, if Jesus stays in the grave, we have nothing. We are nothing. That's why Paul says in another place that we are uh, more than anyone to be pitied because we've placed our faith in a false Savior, someone who couldn't deal with sin, someone who was buried by it, but because he was raised, we can be proclaimed right with God. So if you're here this morning and your life has been characterized by hiding, characterized by blaming, (laughs) characterized by striving because you're trying to do the work that God has called you to do or you think God has called you to do, can I ask you something? Aren't you tired? Aren't you tired? How much is going to be enough? How long do you have to hide? Because my guess is that you're thinking you have to hide long enough for your striving to take over, right? You're hiding just long enough so that your striving takes over and you no longer have to hide because you've dealt with it. (laughs) I'm done. I've fixed this. How long do you have to deflect? How long do you have to work to make it up? And what do you do then with the fact that God isn't asking you to? Remember the insanity of that? If the work that God has called us to do is not to independently do work, then your independently doing of work is not fixing the problem. You're making it worse. You're simply making it worse. And so what we need to do as we get into understanding Jesus our Lord is delivered up for our trespasses, raised for our justification, is to see what else Paul was saying in this passage. So go ahead and give me that now, because there's more here. You see, in Romans chapter 4, what's gone on is Paul in Romans chapter 1 has declared the greatness of God and how he is to be praised above all things. But then in chapters 2 and 3, how all of us are broken and needy. And then in chapter 4, God says, don't worry, or Paul says, don't worry. God made a rescue plan, and it's always been this way. And then he points out the life of this dude named Abraham who he's talking about here. And here's what he says. He says, no belief, no unbelief. Made him, that's Abraham, waver concerning the promise of God. What was the promise of God? Ultimately, the promise of God is, I'm going to come and make this right. You don't have to. You can't. I'm going to come and make it right. He says, but, so he never wavered in the, concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith. So he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. And that's why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. Again, churchy. What does that word righteousness mean? It means faithfulness. Rightness. 
But the words that was counted to him were not written for his sake alone, but also for ours. In other words, that wasn't just true for Abraham, it's true for us also. And it will be counted to us who believe in him who raised from the dead, Jesus our Lord, who was delivered for our trespasses and raised for our justification. Now, what this is talking about ultimately is faith. And I use this illustration a lot. Some of you are new, so you've never heard it. Others of us, frankly, we just need to hear it over and over. And if, if you're not like me, maybe you don't. Faith, this is what we think faith is. We think faith is looking at a chair and understanding that it can hold us, right? That knowing enough about something makes us have faith. But I can look at that chair on that stage and I can tell you it's got four legs, it's got a back, it looks pretty sturdy, fairly sturdy, it's plastic, but you know, it's, yeah, that chair can hold me. But that's not what this is talking about, is it? Am I fully convinced that that chair can hold me? Am I... Am I growing strong in faith by just looking at it and thinking this chair can hold me? No, no, no. Faith, the way the Bible talks about faith, is not just knowing a lot about the chair and being convinced of certain propositions. It's placing your weight in the chair. And the same is true of faith in Christ, that faith in Jesus isn't just about knowing a lot about Jesus. I'm guessing that there's probably most of you in this room can recite a lot of things about Jesus, right? You're here on Easter, you're here on Easter. Like, this is your thing. And so you may know a lot about Jesus. That he's, You may be able to recite something. You may not know. Look, not everyone in this room understands the full breadth of what a lot of these things mean. But maybe, maybe you know things like um, Jesus is the Son of God. Second person of the Trinity. Born of the Virgin Mary. Suffered under Pontius Pilate. Crucified, died, and buried. Descended to hell, third day rose again from the dead. Can I tell you something? If you have not placed your, your, the weight of your life on him, all of those things are useless to you. Faith is placing your weight on him. See, we can look at Jesus and say great things about him, but then go on believing that he can't really hold us. That I still have to do some work. That his love isn't that good, his work isn't that finished. And some of us are here, right there this morning, right? We're right in that place. Because you've never placed your faith in Jesus. Which means that, before God, the work that you are trying to do is not the work that God requires. Placing our faith in Christ is returning to dependence on him. If the work to do is to be dependent on God, then then placing our faith in Christ is returning to God, is returning to dependence, is coming back to him and saying, yes, he is enough for me. He is enough. But if you're a Christian here this morning, your temptation right now is to think that this doesn't much apply to you, isn't it? Because you're like, Rick, come on, man, I got that. Did that. Did you? Let me ask you something. When you blow it, where do you go? See, that's when we know. That's when you know where your faith is. When life, when life comes off the rails, when you blow it, where do you go? 
Where do you look? Because you see, we're fine accepting this at first and going, yeah, 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 I know. I was, he was raised for my justification. I am right before God until I blow it again, right? Until like five minutes after I've gotten done yelling at my kids while I'm trying to take Easter pictures, right? Or like, uh, like right after I looked at that website once again that I wasn't supposed to or, or wh- whatever, you know, what, what we end up doing, I've road rage on the, you know, or, or uh, you know, had one too many drinks again. Made that visit to that dude so I could get my hit again. You know, I, it's coming up April 15th, and I, you know, they'll never know if I write down that wrong number one more time on my taxes. Where do you go when you blow it? Because, you see, we, we tend to think that we're fine with accepting this at first, but now, if you're a Christian, more is expected of you, right? Now, what God does is he wants, now, the work to do is back to what we thought it was to do before we became Christians in the first place. We think that the grace of Jesus covers our past, but we're not sure about our present, and we're completely unsure about our future. How does the grace of Jesus apply then? And so what we end up doing as Christians, even now, is declaring Jesus on Sunday and Monday through Saturday moving back into hiding, blaming, and striving. Don't wait. Don't lie. Listen to me. I want you to look back at verses 24 and 25 real quick, or the, 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 especially verse 25 in Romans. I want you to look at two words, delivered and raised. Delivered and raised. Those are in the past tense, right? As in something that has already happened. Your transgressions, according to what what God has told us in the Bible, are gone He was delivered for our transgressions, not is being delivered or has been delivered and is continues to be. He has been delivered for our transgressions. He was raised for our justification. Do you think Jesus didn't know about those words you were going to say to your kids during Easter pictures? Do you think that Jesus didn't know that that was going to happen when you looked at that site or or took that hit or drank those things that you shouldn't have or, or, you know... uh, got into an online relationship that you know you shouldn't have been in? You think he didn't know? He's like, oops, missed that one. And now it's back up to you. Listen, friends, if your problem before becoming a Christian was independence, it didn't change now. Our goal is to return to him. Just come and receive his grace. If we doubt, we're like, I don't know that it's enough. Paul would say, look to the empty tomb. Because there he was raised for your justification. Raised to make you right. Look to the tomb. And if if there's no body there, then you are justified. If he's not in the tomb, it must mean that you are justified. But you're you're thinking to me, "But, but look at what I've done. And I say, no. Look at what Jesus did. That's the greatest thing about Christianity, and what makes it so different from every other religion of the world. Every other religion of the world is about you. It's about what you do, how much you can work, how many roles you can keep, how many pillars you can build, how many many steps along that path you can reach. And the Christianity comes to you and says, no, 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 it is about what has happened. It's not about you. 
It's about Jesus. It's about his life that was lived perfectly. It's about his death that he died for you in a tomb that's emptied so that you could be declared right with God. It's about him. It doesn't matter what you've done. All that matters is what he did. Which means that at the end of the day, the resurrection of Jesus tells you that the work to do has already been done. So who cares about the resurrection? My greatest hope for you this morning is that you do. So that when we get that stark glimpse, which comes about fairly regularly for most of us, when we get that stark glimpse of who we are in comparison with who we think we should be, we can look to that tomb and remember that the work to do has already been done. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for your grace to us. There's not a person in this room who doesn't constantly get confused by that grace. We get confused by it because we think that it is not enough. We forget that what you are looking for from us is not our independent striving, but instead just coming to you, resting in you, and that Jesus has provided for that. In Jesus, you have borne the weight of our betrayal of you. And so, Lord, I pray that for those of us in this room who have struggled with faith, we don't really know where we're at with the Lord. We don't know where we're at with you. We know a lot of things about Jesus, but we don't really know him. We've never placed our, the whole weight of our lives on him, the whole weight of our hopes, the whole weight of our trust. We pray, I pray right now that you would give us faith to do that. But my guess is the rest of us in this room, where we need faith is that when we've blown it, maybe we did it 10 minutes ago, an hour ago, maybe it'll come a little later today, that, Lord, when, it, when that happens, you would help us not try and clean ourselves up, not try and uh, act on our own bit of penance because we think the work to do is to do better, but instead, Lord, that we would return to you knowing the work to do has already been done. Give us faith this morning, not only to look to the tomb, but to celebrate that it is empty, that Jesus is risen indeed, and that because of that, we are made right before you. We give you praise, Jesus, for dying for our sins, for being delivered over for our trespasses, but also for being raised for our justification. May we live into that, Lord, today and every day. We ask in Christ's name. Amen.